0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Jim Jordan is going to continue in his series on the life of Jacob, and here, he's going to finish off his thoughts on the disaster at Salem. Just a reminder, there's a link in our show notes to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. And when you sign up, you'll get a free ebook on Pado Communion, the Gospel, and the Church by Peter Lightheart. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan finishing his thoughts on the disaster at Salem.
1: We'll conclude our study in Genesis 34. And so when we come back, we can start another section in our study. Where we left off was in verses 19 to 24, where Hamor and Shechem speak to the men of Salem and appeal to them to form a covenant with Jacob and his house, and his clan. And we were surprised to see that the men of this city were willing to circumcise themselves for this We could say they were so overcome with greed that they were willing to go to this extent, but I don't think that we're supposed to read it that way. I think we're supposed to see that this contrasts with the actions of Simeon and Levi. We're surprised that the men would be willing to circumcise themselves. You would tend to think, well, God must be moving in their hearts for them to be willing to do something so extreme. And that just stands against and contrasts With what happens next. And so now we come to verses 25 to the end, and I'll read it. Genesis 34 verses 25 to the end of the chapter. But on the third day it came to pass, while they were still hurting from being circumcised, that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's full brothers, took each man his sword, and they came upon the city that was secure, "...and killed all the males, and Hamor and Shechem his son they killed with the sword, and they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. And Jacob's sons came up upon the corpses and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, whatever was inside the city and out in the field they took. All their riches, all their little ones, and their wives they captured and plundered, as well as all that was in their houses." But Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have stirred up trouble for me, making me stink among the settled folk of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, where I have menfolk few in number, and they will band together against me and strike me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. And they said, Should our sister then be treated like a whore? And that's really not the end of the story. God says to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and stay there, and construct an altar there, to the Mighty One who was seen by you when you fled from Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods in your midst, purify yourselves, and change your garments. So he commands them to get rid of the idols and to repent, and that is in the background of this murder that we just read about. Just a few comments on it. First of all, verses 25 and 26. Obviously, the goal of Simeon and Levi was to incapacitate the men of Salem, the city of Shechem, and they succeeded in doing so. Not only are you in physical pain, but there is a fever that frequently, almost always comes upon a person when this happens, especially a grown person. And so they were unable to do anything. I think we're to understand that Simeon and Levi, being in their mid to late 20s, probably already had some men of their own to help them doing this. Although I suppose it's possible if every man in the city was incapacitated, the two men could go through the city and do this. But you'd still suspect that that'd be pretty hard. Somebody would be able to fight back. There'd be some women who could stop them. So I think that you have to see that there is a band of men out of Jacob's Sheikdom who assist them in doing this, and it says they kill all the men of the city. And specifically, they kill Hamor and Shechem, who had wanted so much to become part of Israel, with mixed feelings, but nevertheless true ones. And they take Dinah back with them. I've got in the notes here that the destruction of Jerusalem later on in the New Testament is a fulfillment of this type. God kills those who abuse his covenant, destroying the false circumcision, and rescues his daughter, the church. That what happens when you get to the New Testament is that the Canaanites are now the people of Israel, and the daughter who needs to be rescued is his church. That's not a pure fulfillment of this event, but it is quite similar. Even though it's wrong here, it's right later on. Well, that's only the first part of the story. These two brothers with their men, they kill all the men. Then we find that on the corpse of this city, the vultures descend. And that, again, is part of the pattern that's pointed to in the New Testament. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather, speaking of Jerusalem and those who fall upon the slain. And, of course, we don't have experience with this. Most of us don't anyway, but... In any older battlefield, after the battle is over, then you're going to have the riffraff come in and take all the gold and pull out all the rings and rip out all the gold teeth and anything else they can find from the slain to spoil them. And these are the vultures. And that's what Jacob's other sons are pictured as. Again, there's no excuse for this. Jacob's other sons came up upon the corpses and plundered the city. This is all the other brothers, or at least some of them. Not just Simeon and Levi, because we read that they went off home. And the fact that the language changes to say Jacob's sons, and not just Simeon and Levi, indicates that more are involved. They're all involved here. Now, earlier in Genesis, again, we have to read this in context. The Mighty One, and that's God's name here, Mighty One. The Mighty One had given Jacob, and before him Abraham and Isaac, much wealth from the Gentiles, but it had been gained by his blessing. And here we have an inversion of that pattern. Instead of earning wealth from the Gentiles, instead of God blessing you with wealth from the Gentiles, instead of the Gentiles bestowing wealth upon you, these are all things that we've seen. When Abram came out of Egypt, Pharaoh gave him a lot of stuff. He spoiled the Egyptians. He says, please, take all this stuff and get out of here. Later on, he earned stuff in their midst. Isaac digs wells and becomes wealthy from work. With Jacob and Laban, it's the same thing. Now, it's quite different. You kill all these people and take all their stuff. Now, this is all going to happen again later on when we come out of Egypt. We will come to the Canaanite cities. And we will fall upon them. And we will kill all the men. And we will take all their spoil. But we won't circumcise them first. These people have all become members of the covenant. And you don't do this to members of the covenant. They're not Canaanites. This is brother murder. These people have all become brothers. And now they're murdered. Well, Jacob passes judgment on them. They have not shown any of the kind of wisdom that Jacob has shown. And we'll comment on that when we get done here. Jacob now passes judgment on Simeon and Levi. (laughs) He says, you've stirred up trouble for me, and you made me stink. That is, I am noisome, I smell bad, what it says, among the folks of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. There's no good witness here. The witness of the kingdom is supposed to be like incense. It's supposed to be attractive. It's supposed to be a savor of life unto life. We're told that when the law is given, that the nations will say, what great nation has such wonderful laws as these? Repeatedly, we're told that the Gentiles will come and say, won't you teach us about the law? Won't you lead us in the ways of righteousness? Over and over again in the Psalms and the prophets, it's prophesied this would take place. And you see it. You see it with Elijah and Elisha, that the Gentiles are much more ready to receive the gospel than the people of Israel because they've been inoculated against it and they're hardened against it. You see it with Joseph. Joseph goes to the Egyptians and they're all ready to hear. It's his brothers who need to be dealt with. They're not so ready to hear. Here it is again. In Genesis already, Abraham has made converts. And the implication is the same kind of thing could have happened here. But it doesn't. Instead, there's a bad odor. Nobody's going to listen now. No matter what you say, nobody's going to listen to you. How ready are any of us to believe anything said by the Clinton administration about anything? After a while, you don't believe them anymore. I mean, they've lost all credibility. Somebody said that Janet Reno was sobbing and in tears while the raid on that American household in Miami was going on. Well, I don't know whether to believe that or not, but I'm not much inclined to believe it. See, after everything that's happened over the last eight years... I think she's an emotional mess anyway. But whether that's true or not, who knows? Who can believe? Nobody's going to believe Jacob's witness now. The witness is ruined. They can go around and say, oh, we're Yahweh's people, the Prince of Peace. Oh, yeah, sure. No possibility of it. And that's the first thing he says. You stirred up trouble for me. You make me stink among the people. I have menfolk few in number. They will band against me and strike me, and I will be destroyed. I and my household. Looks very much self-centered, doesn't it, when you read it that way. But I think we have to see that Jacob is carrying the kingdom of God. And what happens to him is what is happening to the kingdom of God at this point, And the kingdom has been exposed to danger. What will happen to God's whole purposes here if this kind of thing continues? What would have happened to God's purposes if Isaac had succeeded in giving the covenant to Esau and had not been stopped from it. Well, it wouldn't be good. God would have to start again. But what happens here? God is going to have to start again. And really, that's what happens. Something has to happen to put the kingdom back on track because now the witness has been ruined. The sons are obviously corrupt. As we continue to read, we'll see Reuben... Is corrupt here. We have another child born at the end of the narrative, which is some hope for the future, but then we come to an end. And we have to start with Joseph, and Joseph is gonna provide, the whole Joseph narrative then is gonna provide the answer to this. Joseph is gonna go among the Gentiles, and he'll convert them. It won't be this kind of thing at all. And Joseph is gonna be attacked, and Joseph is gonna be thrown in prison, then it's not going to be all that just and fair. And when Joseph gets power in Egypt, we're not going to read that he sought out Potiphar's wife and had her put to death and killed all of Potiphar's household and killed everybody that was related to Potiphar. Joseph doesn't do that. Although they mistreated him and treated him badly. So Joseph is going to provide the proper response and action from this and he's going to have to convert these sons and bring them back into the house or else... The kingdom is wrecked. So it's a very serious thing. And in terms of the history of Genesis, it's now we're at another very bad point. Something has to happen to redeem this situation. And just as we close here, we can see a little bit of it in the chapter ahead. We've already pointed to it. Well, before we do that, I need to comment on this statement of the sons here. Their response to Jacob's chastisement is that they refused to hear it. They refused to hear anything. If they had failed to protect Dinah, they didn't take responsibility for it. Instead, they blamed Shechem, who shouldn't have done what he did. But they apparently should have been there too. At least one would think so. They refused to be placated, even though Shechem says, I will do anything you want. And even though they did some very extreme things to show their good intentions. And now they refuse to hear their father's judgment and harden their hearts. And they say, should our sister be treated like a whore? Now this anger goes way beyond the provocation. And they have inflated the offense in their minds. And you can watch this going on in the passage. Shechem seduces Dinah. It's about as much as you can say. And then... Dinah had been defiled and then it was a disgrace and now we get down here and he treats her like a prostitute. Well, he didn't treat her like a prostitute. What's interesting about this statement is that's the kind of thing these guys are going to start doing because of the significant story that comes up almost immediately in chapter 38 is Judah who does become involved with prostitute and Judah is the Next brother in line. Simeon and Levi have committed this sin. Reuben is going to become involved in incest with his father's wife. And then Judah is going to become involved with harlots. And so these guys don't have much room to talk. And the passage makes that plain. Well, so now we come then to this aftermath. We'll take up in more detail later on. But to see the whole story... We started off camped outside the city of Salem. We have an altar there. We have a witness there. We have a good relationship with these people. Something happens that shouldn't have happened, but it's perfectly possible to make it right. All these people are going to be circumcised. That means they're going to be brought much closer into a relationship with Yahweh. Witness to them will be much improved. Now it's all destroyed. You know, we've got to move away. We have to go away from these people. And now, Notice what happens. God tells them some things. Let me just read this. Verses 35, 1-7 to 7. God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Beth-el, the house of the Mighty One, and stay there, and construct an altar there to the Mighty One who was seen by you when you fled from Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are in your midst. And that tells us what the problem has been behind this story they brought these gods with them from laban's household they're acting like laban they're behaving like laban they're involved in deceit with a purpose to harm we saw in the last hour there's a deception with a purpose to save to heal and there's deception with the intention to harm and genesis plays off on these two and these two sons here are not so much sons of Jacob, but sons of Laban. They deceive with intention to harm. And Laban's gods that they brought along are connected to that thematically. Purify yourselves. Change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel, and there I will construct an altar to the God who answered me on the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. See, Jacob had hoped he'd get back into the land and there would be peace. And there was for a while. But now everything is back the way it was in a sense. Esau threatened to kill him. God appeared to him at Bethel. When he came back into the land, God appeared to him again in his distress. Esau was going to kill Jacob because Esau blamed Jacob for getting the inheritance. Jacob had to run away. He comes to Bethel. Now look what's happening here. All the other Canaanite cities around about, you can be sure, are considering what they need to do about this Jacob bunch, these Israelites. Maybe we better arm ourselves and kill these people before they fall on our city and kill us like they did to the city of Salem. And so Jacob is now very much worried and he goes back to Bethel to the God who meets him when you're fleeing from Esau, when you're fleeing from terrible situations. He says then in verse 3, Let's arise and go to Bethel, back to that same place, and there I will construct an altar to the God who answered me on the day of my distress. He was with me on the way that I went. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that were in their hands along with the sacred rings that were in their ears. Rings in their ears. I know you ladies just wear rings for decoration, but apparently part of the meaning of this is you put a ring on that has something to do with your God and that means that you hear the voice of your God. It's like having an earplug. You want to listen to some music and other people don't want to have to listen to it. You put a plug in your ear or you listen to an audio book or something. Well, I think that something similar is involved with these sacred rings. The ring connects you up to the voice of your God and they had rings on to other gods. You've got to get rid of those rings And have a ring on your ear, so to speak. Circumcise your ear, as the Bible puts it later on, so that you hear the word of God that's in the Bible. And Jacob buried them under the oak that is near Shechem. So he left them there. And then they moved on. And then this is what I wanted us to get to. A dread from God lay upon the towns that were around them so that they did not pursue Jacob's sons. They were minded to do it. That's how dangerous this situation was. But because Jacob at least repented and made the clan repent, God protected them. And we'll have to come back and look at this in more detail. But this much at least concludes this story. The kingdom was almost wrecked. Well, this is another false story. Adam was given a kingdom. Adam didn't take any time to wreck it. Noah was given a kingdom when he was going to pass to his sons. Almost immediately, one of his sons tries to wreck it. David was given a kingdom, and once he was settled in his house, he gets involved with Bathsheba and almost wrecks it. There's this one fall after another, and this is the fall of Jacob's clan. God has spent all this time building Jacob up. He's been a righteous man. He's been through hard times. He has all these sons, and now we have the whole nation of Israel And they come into the land, and in this narrative, this is now the fall. The fall into sin. And it's a sin with respect to their calling. They were supposed to bear witness to the Gentiles. They were supposed to evangelize among the Gentiles. And remember we said, you can't expect Gentiles to behave right. They're not Christians. Do we expect unbelievers not to sin? Christians sin. We can expect unbelievers to sin. So, this man commits a sin. He assaults this girl in some mild way. It wasn't all that serious as we saw. The text does not imply a serious assault. But he shouldn't have done what he did because he's the man and the man is more responsible. But then they want to make it right. Nothing could be clearer. They could come into the covenant. They could start on that track toward maturity. They could be woven in. That was the whole purpose of Israel, to bear witness. Now it's all wrecked. So there's a fall. What are we going to do now? to restore it. The subsequent events in Genesis will show us God untangling this mess and bringing redemption. And of course, as I mentioned, the birth of Benjamin will be a sign, but the life of Joseph will actually accomplish the redemption that needs to happen. Well, for us, we mess messed up everything, but Jesus is our Redeemer, and He's made it all right for us in spite of our sins. Left ourselves, we would do the same kind of thing. And there's probably no one in this room who hasn't at one time or another not witnessed for Christ as effectively as he or she should. But Jesus has redeemed us from that. He's forgiven us for it. If we put aside the idols in our hearts and turn to Him, and that's why we're here today. That's why we had a confession of sin. At the beginning of this worship service, we confessed our sins and put away the idols. And God will meet with us now at His table.